This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Good morning. And happy Father's Day. Charles Osgood is off today. He was the father of the groom at his son Winston's wedding yesterday in Connecticut. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. Today is the perfect day to take a look at a field of inquiry that is all in the family, or more precisely, who was in your family generation upon generation ago. Tracy Smith will report our cover story. You might say it's a business out for blood. Family history is a multi-billion dollar industry. If you have the money, they'll take you through time. What are people most interested in finding out? Am I related to a celebrity? <laughs> That's seriously? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. Ahead this Sunday morning, climbing the family tree. Like father, like son. Tim Daly followed both his parents into the acting business, and he now portrays the husband of a Washington power player. Anna Warner will have our Sunday profile. Hey, Dad. Thanks. You look terrible. Thanks, honey. On Madam Secretary, he plays a quintessential TV dad. But growing up, Tim Daly didn't see much of his own father. I saw him on television, so I thought he was in my life a lot more than he was, but he wasn't. So that's why his favorite role may be opposite his own son. We are Daly's. We are a family dynasty, a dynasty of actors. Tim Daly, actor and dad, later on Sunday morning. The most colorful of threads tie the lives of a talented father and daughter together with gratifying results for both of them, as Anthony Mason will show us. Growing up, Andra Eggleston found her father, William Eggleston, as mysterious as his famous photographs. What does this man see? 
What are these photographs? But two years ago, father and daughter began collaborating on a project that's changed the way they see each other. He said, God damn, that's beautiful. What is that? <laughs> now that's your drawing. A Father's Day portrait later on Sunday morning. A movie on the summer screen overseas is shedding light on a huge problem right here at home, thanks in part to actor Richard Gere. He'll be talking about it all with our Seth Doe. What's your name? What do you want it to be? He's famous for acting in blockbusters like Pretty okay. Woman. But these days, Richard Gere says he wants to make films that do more than just entertain. How do you connect watching a movie to making real change? Well, the movie hopefully allows people with space to feel something. Change doesn't really come from your head, it comes from your heart. Playing a different role ahead on Sunday morning. Through the morning, we'll be offering perspectives on last weekend's bloodshed in Orlando along with some lighter notes. Mo Rocca has a story with socks appeal. Luke Burbank finds himself in a hairy situation. Jim Gaffigan, father of five, ponders the meaning of Father's Day and more. We are justice-seeking Ahead, aftermath. But first... There are billions of records that people can search through from the comfort of your home. In search of the family tree. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Father's Day is a day for all in the family to celebrate, except for those who, through no fault of their own, have no idea who's exactly at the root of their family tree. Our cover story this morning is reported by Tracy Smith. I love being a daddy. It's just one of the funnest things to do. At 55, Kevin Giddens is only now finding out who he really is. Just after he was born, his unwed teenage mother gave him up for adoption. With no real family history and no ties to any of his blood relatives, Kevin was basically a stranger to himself. Did you feel kind of incomplete? Definitely. I knew nothing about me. Can you imagine growing up knowing nothing about your health, your family, knew nothing? When at school, when kids have reports on their family history, there's Kevin with nothing. Yeah. He knew he wanted to trace his roots. He didn't know how relatively easy it would be. Family history has become a multi-billion dollar business. It's said to be the second biggest hobby in the U.S., right behind gardening. And online, genealogy is the second most visited website category. Only porn is more popular. By their lineage, by USC professor Vern Bankson says we all have a built-in desire to know where and who we come from. We want to find out about the... Um, highs and the lows, the triumphs, the tribulations um, of people who, whose genes we carry. I have my grandfather's hairline. I'm not terribly proud of it. I think it's a bit unfortunate, but it's part of me. It's part of my genes. It's part of my inheritance. And if you want to trace your family back through time, this is the place, Salt Lake City. It's home to the Mormon Church, whose members trace their family trees to find ancestors who died without being baptized, so they can be baptized posthumously and brought into the fold. The Mormons have the largest family search library on earth. The largest commercial ancestry service, Ancestry.com, is just down the road. Around here, they spend a lot of time reading microfilm and sorting through old court records. Some of it is in books, so they have archivists who do this all day. You might say it's a real page-turner. For fees that start at around $20 a month, they'll give you access to their database and maybe a peek into your past. What are people most interested in finding out? Am I related to a celebrity? <laughs> Michelle Erkenbrack is a family historian. What do you think it is? Why is it such an emotional journey for so many people? Because it's so personal. There are things that you can learn about yourself and your family that you can't learn in any other way. There are billions of records that people can search through? 
from the comfort of your home. And it can all be pretty entertaining. On this episode, Chris Noth traces his father's family back to a devastating catastrophe. It's like a bomb went off. Ancestry.com helps produce several different TV shows where celebrities climb their own family trees. Like TLC's Who Do You Think You Are? Our CBS colleague Julie Chen traced her roots in China and learned that her maternal grandfather was a business tycoon. And so much more. But what you found out was pretty interesting. What I found out was pretty interesting, um, I mean, the riches to rags to riches was the least of it. Uh, my grandfather had many, many wives and many, many children. So I have a lot of relatives. But before her grandfather died of cancer at age 62, he founded a school that stands to this day. I'm like, wow, grandpa had like a big heart and could see past his own suffering. I wish I were that big of a person. I don't know if I would be. You have that in you. That's the point of this. I hope. I hope. You know, you never know. You say, oh, I would do this if I was in his shoes or her shoes. But you never know until you're faced with it. My own family's story is far less compelling, but it was still pretty interesting, for me anyway. So this is his passenger list of when he left Germany and came to New York in 1883. This is pre-Ellis Island. Jeez. They found documents showing the exact date my great-grandfather stepped off the boat. They also found the boat. This is the Westphalia. So this is a picture of the ship that they traveled on in this passenger list. That is so, it's the Westphalia? Mm -hmm. So the last document I have is a picture of your mom. So this is a yearbook photo that we found from her. Aww. Have you seen this picture? No, how crazy is that? And if you want to go really deep, Ancestry.com is one of more than two dozen companies that'll probe your DNA. The results can potentially tell you who you're related to, where in the world you came from, and what your ethnicity might be. We're actually, uh, in some cases, finding ancestors for people that know nothing about where they come from. More and more Ancestry CEO and Tim and Sullivan more says more DNA tests are helpful to a point. Um, because it seems like how accurate is the DNA? Does that present a, a full picture or is it really only a slice? We're very accurate in uh, assessing or determining who is a close cousin or a close family member. And I say close sort of when third, fourth, or maybe uh, fifth cousins. Uh, as it gets out to that edge of fifth cousins, uh, there are some false positives and false negatives. Uh, but it's actually pretty accurate. It is. Family is very important. In Kevin Giddens' case, the results were good enough to give him details of a past he'd only imagined. So as I do my history from what plantation I was from, uh, can find out the records of where the slave owner bought those slaves from, you can trace it all the way back to an African culture. I picture a trip to Africa coming. Oh, girl, you don't know. I'm excited for that. Kevin also located a few blood relatives who helped lead him to the one person he dreamed of all his life, his birth mother, still alive and living in South Carolina. I found a cousin through DNA test, and then a cousin found uh, a nephew, and then eventually found her children, and eventually found her. What was that like? Well, it was pretty, pretty special. She said, I'm the mother on your birth certificate. I stood for, I thought, hours thinking, I finally found her. And next month, Kevin will take his family to meet her. The Giddens family portrait will soon be a little bigger and maybe a little happier. Once you have truth and you can live in your truth, that gives you power. And I'm grateful that I can now live in my truth of knowing who I am and who my family is. That's what the DNA test, that's what searching ancestries did for me. It allowed me to live in my truth. Next, opening the door to the future. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, June 19th, 1931. 
85 years ago today, the day the door opened to a whole new world of technology. For that was the day the Stanley Works Company installed the world's first automatic doors at Wilcox's Pier Restaurant in West Haven, Connecticut. Placed between the kitchen and the dining room, the doors sprang open the moment a photoelectric eye detected a person's approach. In a letter written to the Stanley Company, the restaurant's president said, they are one of the most satisfactory pieces of equipment which we've ever installed and have certainly speeded up the service of our waitresses. You might say the automatic doors broke the field of door opening wide open. Today, there are devices to open virtually any imaginable kind of door. Everything from the entrance to the local store to the entrance to the home garage. Even doors to chicken coops. And popular culture has taken note. Welcome to Jurassic Park. A huge automatic gate welcomed visitors to Hollywood's Jurassic Park. While a seemingly malevolent door pinned Steve Carell in the 2008 spy spoof, Get Smart. An experienced Bart Simpson Stupid automatic door could certainly relate to. All in all, we probably take the convenience of automatic doors for granted. Unless, that is, you're this little boy, encountering one for the very first time. <laughs> Coming up... What does this man see? What are these photographs? In living color. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A father's eye for a colorful photograph and his ear for music are the threads that tie him to his daughter with an eye and a talent of her own. Anthony Mason has paid both of them a visit. William Eggleston is one of the giants of color photography, among the most influential artists of his time. My entire life, I have been approached at his openings. Well, what's it like to be the daughter of William Eggleston? I wanted to turn around to people and say, what was it like? Do you want to trade places with me? Please. And I spent my entire life just wanting to be normal. Eggleston's subjects can seem hauntingly ordinary. Most people want something obvious, he said. I am at war with the obvious. Even for his daughter Andra, Eggleston's images have not been easy to decipher. What does this man see? What are these photographs? But his music has always reached her. When I was little and he was a total stranger to me, a total enigma. I would hear him playing the piano and it would just stop me in my tracks. Like it was like my love song. His drawings have touched her too. Colorful, abstract sketches Eggleston's been making for decades. He's filled countless notebooks. Do you have any idea how many drawings you've done? Thousands. And where do they all end up? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? <laughs> huh. You find them in very strange places. That's right. Two years ago, Andra, who studied textile design, suddenly had an inspiration to turn her father's drawings into fabrics. He said, God damn, that's beautiful. What is that? <laughs> now that's your drawing. <laughs> that new partnership between the 76-year-old artist and his 44-year-old daughter has changed the fabric of their relationship. The drawings were like our language where we could sort of communicate, and I hadn't really had that with him. Uh -huh. I never had that with him in his photography. I just, I just didn't. In the 60s, Eggleston ignored the prevailing wisdom that color photography was commercial, even vulgar. Fine art photography didn't exist in color. Why did you want to see more in color? Everything is in color out there. Raised on the family farm in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, Eggleston shot pictures across the American South. They focus on the mundane world, Eudora Welty wrote, but no subject is fuller of implications. People describe in your photographs something slightly unsettling. They should. 
<laughs> That's not a conscious thing, though. Why do you think it's there? I don't know. In 1976, Eggleston had his first major show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. He was late to his own opening. When his family went to fetch him, this is how they found the artist. Critics at the time were equally unmoved. The New York Times called the exhibition perfectly boring. People would have been pretty devastated by their initial response to your work. That's what I kept hearing. <laughs> but it didn't phase you? No. I couldn't understand why they didn't make sense to them. Eventually, the art world caught up. In 2012, a large print of his Memphis tricycle sold at auction for $578,000. Eggleston's life has been as unconventional as his art. In Memphis, a friend once said, he was dashing and corrupt like a count. He was close to his wife Rosa, but also lived with other women. Were you and your brothers confused by your parents' living arrangements? I was. I don't think they were. Andra remembers one night a brick flew through the window at home. I have a mom. My dad has a girlfriend. They're still married, but the ex-girlfriend threw the brick through the window. And all I was thinking is, God, this is going to end up in the papers. Because everything my dad did at that time, for some reason, ended up in the papers. Rosa Eggleston's death last summer also brought father and daughter closer. In Nashville, where she lives with her husband and son, Andra Eggleston launched her new fabrics last year at the Wilder Design Store. This is probably the most popular pillow. This is the Berlin. Her line, called Electra Eggleston, has been written up in W Magazine. The French fashion house Agnes Bay is making dresses out of her fabrics. I can't even tell where the repeat on this is. Well, that's my magic. It is. It works. <laughs> it's all deepened her relationship with her father. He started looking at things in a different way. And I never thought I would get William Eggleston to look at something in a different way. <laughs> Me? Do you think he got a clearer pathway to you as well? I do. I do. He said a lot of things to me recently that I've never heard him say before. Isn't she something? <laughs> he's just always been very silent. He has been supportive in his own way, mm -hmm. but he's just never been so vocal. What do you do with that except just take it? Total and utter appreciation for what's happening. It's been very healing for mm -hmm. me. It's helped me love him more. Does it matter that it took so long? No. At the end of our day together, Bill Eggleston sat at the piano in his Memphis apartment and for half an hour just improvised. I just close my eyes and hear that music. It still pierces me. It just sounds pure to me. The piano, always this father's most powerful connection to his daughter, but no longer the only one. Still to come. Great change. Life on the streets. A different sort of role for Richard Gere. And Tim Daly. When I tell you I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it. Mr. Madam Secretary. So what happened after he climbed up the tower and rescued her? She rescues him right back. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. Richard Gere played a millionaire who had everything but love in the 1990 movie Pretty Woman. It's very different from the role he took on that's now up on the summer screen overseas. It was a project close to Gere's heart, as he tells our Seth Doan. I think we're all looking for, for home. I think we're all looking for our place. After a career of playing the dashing leading man in movies like Pretty Woman, an officer and a gentleman, and Chicago, help me out, spare change. 
Not long ago, Richard Gere turned his attention to the fringes and the forgotten. What made you want to make this movie about being a homeless man? There were 60,000 people homeless in New York City, and by some estimates, close to a million in the country. So it's, it's a serious issue. It can be viewed as a, as a problem, or as it can be viewed as a, as a responsibility we have. No, 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 that's not what it's about. I'm homeless. I'm nobody. I, I don't exist. You're reduced. You don't exist. Back. We do not exist. We don't exist. We don't exist. The film Time Out of Mind, which made its debut in Italy this past week, was a dozen years in the making and a labor of love for the actor. With very little dialogue and long-distance camera shots, gear almost disappears on the streets of New York. I think you start to, to actually feel what that's like to be fragmented in the world. We met Gear in a very different world. Hello, hello. At a screening in Rome, where he added some Hollywood sizzle to the already spectacular Villa Taverna, the U.S. ambassador's residence. He's not only a fantastic artist, but he is an equally fantastic humanitarian. John Phillips, America's ambassador to Italy, says he admires Gear's lifetime of advocating for the disadvantaged. And he believes the film's Italian debut will likely spark discussion. We have a lot of government officials, a lot of um, politicians, people in power, that should understand more about the causes of homelessness and the life of a homeless person. And it's a small crowd, but I think an important crowd for, for a movie like this. Hello, how are you? Which language do you speak? Of course, in Italy, the issue of searching for a home has taken on new urgency since nearly 400,000 migrants and refugees have arrived on this nation's shores since 2014, fleeing war, persecution, and extreme poverty. Thousands have died making the dangerous crossing. When you watch these pictures of these families coming across the Mediterranean, what goes through your mind? Where am I safe in the world? Where am I safe when you see a father with his kids and how horribly guilty he feels that he can't protect his family. Gear says he wanted to hear firsthand from those who'd made that perilous journey. To get to the other side shows a lot of courage. So while in Rome, he visited community aid group Sant'Egidio, which provides shelter, language classes, and the tools refugees and migrants need to start a new life. People always look at me a little funny. You want to hear my story? I just want to hear, how did you end up here? What happened? That room felt like we'd all known each other forever. Already it felt like I got your back. Is that why you do it? Is that what you get out of hearing the stories? I think that's what we're all about, is our stories. Yes. No problem, integration? No, not a lot, because as a community here, it's super organized. One of those stories was Noor Isis, a Syrian who in April was rescued along with her family from a refugee camp in Lesbos, Greece, and brought to Italy by Pope Francis himself. We met Isa the night she arrived. Can you believe that you're here? No, no, <laughs> no I can't believe she told us she'd seen Gears films back in Syria and never imagined meeting him here. Does a visit by someone like Mr. Gear really change anything? Does it really help? I don't know. But maybe, maybe, I don't know. I hope. Gears' visit certainly put the issue of refugees and homelessness on Italian front pages. I watched you come into the press conference earlier and there were... TV cameras around you, people trying to take pictures. And I thought a celebrity has this ability to shine a light on an issue. It's also a huge responsibility. I have to know a little bit what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's, that's really the responsibility. That's why I'm going to Lampedusa. If I'm going to talk about refugees, i got to be there. The next day, he traveled to Lampedusa, an Italian island just off the coast of Tunisia. It's the entry point to Europe for thousands of refugees. Our cameras were not allowed inside the migrant center, but an employee gave us photos of the meeting 
and we caught up with a reflective gear afterwards. This is a real deal situation when you look at the survival level here of people, but also the sense of joy. Hey, look around you. There's not sad people here. These are people who have created community. For decades, Gear has fought for a number of communities, among them Tibetans, those living with HIV-AIDS, people without a home, and now people without a country. Even when I met you, you put your hand on my shoulder. It's like you're looking for a connection in your work, for the people you meet. When things slow down in their space and people look each other in the eye, something magical can happen. My father is 94 years old. I remember maybe 20, 25 years ago talking to my dad. Um, I said, Dad, you've seen everything. All these incredible things that, and he finds it marvelous. I mean, when I started showing FaceTime, you, know, you could actually see us from, I can call you right, I can get him right now if he would figure out how to press the button. How to answer. <laughs> but I said, this is just incredible. I said, Dad, all this stuff, do you think it makes life any better? No. For him, it's still, it's still this, where people realize that we, we have so much that we share. Richard Gere is sharing his time his spotlight, and his voice in hopes that somehow the world might be just a bit better if we work together, listen, and perhaps most of all, engage. That simple connection makes everything meaningful. Dad puts his best foot forward. Up next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. On this Father's Day, we've got Dad covered head to toe. Later, beards. But right now, Moraka shows off a little socks appeal. Gretchen Spittler and Tony Trinchera of Rochester, New York, have been married for six years. Gretchen, how does Tony look when he's dressed up? Oh, I think he cleans up nice. Gretchen adores Tony from head to toe. Well, almost. But if there's one element of his wardrobe that isn't working, what is it? Uh, Tony has trouble with his socks. Tony, is that right? Yes. Tony doesn't seem to give a darn about his socks. You'll wear one pair of socks for how long? Years. If I'm walking on a tile floor and I can feel the cold right there on my heels, then, you know then I know it's pretty much done. Yeah. But for Tony, a college professor, finding dress socks that fit properly is no mean feat. How would you describe the shape of Tony's feet? I don't know if this is fair, but it almost looks like you could fit a sixth toe in the width of his foot. Yes. <laughs> Do socks matter? Absolutely. And menswear designer Vivek Negrani should know. His socks have been hailed by the fashion world and adorned the feet of an American president. The man who's wearing carefully chosen socks is sending a message that says what? That he pays attention to detail. You naturally will start to think of that person a little bit different. You start to almost see an insight into his personality. Maybe that person's a bit creative, right? yes. an out-of-the-box thinker. Yes, and this is what gives the man an opportunity to, be, to quietly express himself. Negrani sells his brand of high-end hosiery for men out of his New York City boutique. Prices start at $35 a pair, using only the best of fabrics. Baby alpaca. Feel this. Oh. Precision design. This is a substantial amount of stretch band. It actually feels like someone's massaging your foot. And there's a pair for pretty much any occasion. We created a sock designed for leisure space travel. So this is one small step for man, one giant leap for sock wear. Exactly. <laughs> when did people start wearing socks? From the Stone Age, from the beginning of time. Stephen Frumkin is a dean at New York's Fashion Institute of Technology. The Egyptians are the first, I believe, where you could actually find a knitted form of a footwear that went in between the skin and a sandal. Socks became commonplace in the 1500s with the invention of the knitting machine. 
my father would always wear black, sometimes blue socks. I don't remember him ever wearing a patterned sock. I think if you go back to the 20s, there was the wealthier people wore socks that went along with their outfits that they wore. Plain, simple men wore black socks. Men today have a stunning variety of socks to stuff in their drawers. But Frumpkin says it's often the women in their lives who are footing the bill when it comes to more adventurous sock wear. I mean, if you look at some of the socks that are out there today with the funky little patterns that are on there, I don't think most men would think about wearing that, but I think they wear it because that's been given to them as a gift. Which brings us back to Tony and Gretchen and designer Vivek Negrani. If I may, his feet are very atypically shaped. Wow. That's a situation. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have you try on a pair of red socks? Oh, my gosh. Okay. How's that feel? That feels good. Tony jumped in with both feet. Would you now consider something with a pattern? Um, I think so, if it was the right pattern, you know, for me. That, that looks great. I think I would wear that to work. Well, that's change. Wow, look at you, compared to what you walked in here with. Yeah, who'd have thought, huh? These are nice, those are great. Gretchen, is this the man you met nine years ago? He is much more open-minded than the man I met nine years ago. Your feet look great, love. Okay. Steve Hartman is next. Charleston, one year later. The killings in Orlando have had repercussions across the country, especially in one city that marked a terrible anniversary of its own. Here's Steve Hartman. This past week, we suffered the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. But another tragedy may be what happens this coming week. We will mourn, we will celebrate the lives lost, and then it's back to business as usual. Malcolm Graham has seen this vicious cycle up close. Is that her? Yeah. A year ago, last Friday, his sister, Cynthia Hurd, and eight others were shot to death at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. Malcolm thought for sure that mass killing would be the final straw, that our leaders would try something, anything, to stop this plague. I just can't figure out what's going to have to happen for uh, honest men and women to meet in the middle to do what's in the best interest of all of our citizens. What worries him most is that our country is now so far down this road of mourn, move on, repeat, that someday soon we'll just accept these shootings as status quo. All these things tend to blend together, and my job, my hope is that we don't forget. But remembering them all, just all the recent shootings, I just pulled this up, is a tall order. Do you remember Chattanooga? I do. Even for those who care the most. Do you remember Roseburg, Oregon? Yeah. Herkimer County in New York? I know. And eventually, I'm going to say to somebody, Charleston, I guess I don't remember it. Yeah. The Senate will now observe a moment of silence for the victims of the Orlando attack. Every time there's a shooting, we have these moments of silence, but they've taken on a hollow ring. We have candlelight vigils, but then abandon our outrage before the wax hits the ground. Malcolm wonders, how many of these pictures do we have to see? Will there ever be a death toll large enough, a victim innocent enough, to make us finally bring this parade to an end. If there's hope, it's that every time a shooter takes another life, he adds to the army of friends and family who will not be quieted. You tell the story wherever you can and whoever is willing to listen. You just tell the story. Because sometimes we need to be reminded of what we promised to never forget. Still to come, a Father's Day tale from Tim Daly. My father had the means and, and the desire to see me, and I loved him desperately, and I saw him maybe a couple of weeks a year. And Roots. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I'm on your side, remember? Well, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like I'm dealing with a typical D.C. bureaucrat. Wait, it is, it's Sunday morning on CBS. And here again is Lee Cowan. 
Tim Daly's role as the Secretary of State's husband on Madam Secretary here on CBS is only the most recent in a career that started 50 years ago when he was only 10. Anna Werner has our Sunday profile. Wow. He sent the Secretary of oh. State to check on me. Well, the president was busy, mm, so... Yeah. On the CBS series Madam Secretary, Tim Daly plays a professor turned intelligence operative and the husband to Taya Leone's Secretary of State. What do you say? You up for helping to capture the most wanted terrorist on the planet? Yeah. I'm in. A role Daly says he likes because his character is honest, funny, and above all, not subservient. When I tell you I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it. I'm going back to bed. I have guys come up to me all the time and say, thank God you are playing a competent man. Thank you for being someone who's, you know, strong and can, you know, fix stuff and, and where the house doesn't burn down if his wife goes away. Did you call Jane Fellows? I did. I support your decision. No, you don't. It's a complex character, and one that suits this veteran actor from a family of actors. Well, my mother, my father, my sister, me, my sister's daughter. Tim's father, James, co-starred in the 1970s series Medical Center. His mother, Hope, was a respected stage actress. And big sis, Tyne Daly? She won fame playing Lacey in Cagney and Lacey. It was only natural then that Tim's first TV role in 1966 at age 10 was a family affair, a job with his dad in a production of An Enemy of the People. They called you a traitor, an enemy of the people. I had no idea what I was doing. You can see me looking right into the camera. Uh, and they apparently didn't have enough money or something to edit me out, but I just... Uh, he says growing up in an acting family definitely shaped his outlook. When you're in the, in the third grade play, most of the time your parents or grandparents are squeezing your cheeks and saying, oh, you were so cute, you were adorable, I loved you, I loved and you. And in your family. And for me, I got notes, right? It was like, listen, if you hold that line until you walk downstage, you're going to get a laugh. Daly's real career began in theater, but his big break came when he snagged a key role in the classic buddy film, Diner. You in, Billy? No, I'm not in. Where he joined a few other unknowns, including Mickey Rourke and Kevin Bacon. I mean, it was the beginning of a lot of people's careers. It was terrifying for me because I didn't know anything about film. But that didn't stop him from becoming a major success in the 1990s television series, Wings. A little bit. You need to be a little bit more spontaneous. Hey, I like spontaneity as much as the next guy. I just need a little warning so it doesn't come completely out of nowhere. Did Wings get the recognition that you felt it deserved? As I run into it now, when I'm flipping channels late at night, I watch it and I think, this show is freaking hilarious. We've got to stop this right now before it goes any further. I couldn't agree more. All the ink and all the attention and all the adulation went to Seinfeld and Cheers and Friends and all these other shows, so we sort of felt like the red-headed stepchild. I'm going straight to Elizabeth. We've got to stop that shit. A stepchild, Madam Secretary definitely is not. You want to go fool around on the couch till it dings? Affirmative. And that on-screen marriage has also led to an off-screen romance with his co-star. Do you get tired of the questions about your relationship with Taya Leone? Well, I don't get asked that often. Um, I think because people are scared. But <laughs> I'm not scared. <laughs> People have been scared. But all, this is the thing. My romantic successes and failures, which there have been some of both, are private. And I would like um, you and whoever else out there cares to just be really happy for me. He's not only uncomfortable with these questions, he says he can also be uncomfortable around others. Meeting you in person, you don't seem shy, but you've said that you are very shy. I'm very shy. Um, I deal with it by being an actor, by putting myself in public. But it, inside, uh, I am shy. 
and I feel um, sort of embarrassed <laughs> about myself. I guess. Embarrassed about it? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, we all feel have feelings of inadequacy, and I struggle with that. Daly says acting has helped him through his other personal struggles as well. He battled alcoholism in his 20s, remaining sober ever since. And although his parents divorced when he was nine, there was one secret he found out about years later that still affects him. My dad left when I was a very young man and a young boy, and I didn't see him very much. You know, my parents had a long and difficult marriage, mostly because my father was gay. Um, not many people know this, but um, given the wisdom of that era, the medical, psychological, and societal wisdom of that time, which was all false, being homosexual was a disease, right, that could be cured. My father worked very hard to try to cure himself of something that was incurable, and so did my mom, and it was very sad. So when he left, um, my parents made a mutual decision based on all this false information that they would limit my exposure to my father so that I would not contract this disease. And um, it, was, it was a tragedy as I look back on it because my father had the means and, and the desire to see me and I loved him desperately and I saw him maybe a couple of weeks a year. It wasn't until he was 19, Daly says, that his father told him the truth. And just two years later... We were about to do a play together uh, a summer stock tour, and my father died on the day we were going to begin rehearsals. So it felt like this momentous point in my life where I was about to really get to know him as a man, and the universe intervened, and there was this moment where the torch was passed, and I was now the man. Um, so, uh, you know, I was sort of robbed of that, of the opportunity to really get to know my dad. So I bet with your own son that it's been really important to you to be close to him. Oh, gosh. I mean, both my kids. He's a wonderful dad. Yeah. He's always been extremely supportive of both of us. Mm -hmm. he's, he's loving. He's present. And so involved with his kids, Sam and Emmelyn, also actors, that he and his son even have a web series together called, what else? The Daily Show. Oh, Daily Show's a reality show. That's just, that's just real life. I want to talk to the Tim Daly that is my special sauce. Should I leave? We have an inordinate amount of fun. We laugh like maniacs, and it's this bizarre alternate universe version of our own life. We are dailies. We are a family dynasty, a dynasty of actors, generations. We're like a line of cobblers stretching back into history. You know, my, my only heartbreak about the show is that we haven't had Emmeline on yet. I know. Yeah, so when's uh, that we gotta get That'll her. change soon. That'll, That'll change soon. Yeah. That'll change soon. Right. Yet another role for Tim Daly. And which one is his favorite? If there's anything I want to be known for, it's uh, hopefully for being a good dad to my kids, because there's nothing more important to me. Face facts. It's built in. Beard, bad guy. Just a hair. Luke Burbank now on a hair-raising issue for some dads. Once upon a time, the most powerful, most respected men in the world had the most robust of facial hair. Today, though, let's be honest. Walking into a bar full of large dudes with large beards, drinking large beers, can be intimidating, to say the least. And Fred Ramirez says he knows why. We see it in cartoons. Oh, you ornery fur-bearing critter! I'm Yosemite Sam! We see it in movies. Pathetic earthlings. It's built in. It's subconscious, and it happens. Beard, bad guy. Yeah. Thank you for making it. Fred Ramirez, or Fred Von Knox, as he's known on social media, is the founder of the Bearded Villains, a group dedicated to doing good and changing perceptions about guys with beards. Have you considered giving every bearded villain a puppy to carry 
<laughs> just at all times, so they uh, just look non-threatening? You know, it may get lost in the beard. I don't know. <laughs> the villains started off as an Instagram feed of, you guessed it, dudes with beards. And since has become the largest beard club in the world, with 85 chapters worldwide. I'm Luke. Luke. This clean-shaven correspondent no, met fun. some of them recently in Fullerton, California, and learned you do not use the word clean-shaven around the proudly hirsute. If a man likes the shaved look, mm -hmm. I refuse to say clean-shaved. There's no such a clean shave. It's either shave or not. You feel like clean shave is unfair because it assumes that not shaving is dirty. Exactly. The villains say they face significant beard-related discrimination. Bearded villain Adrian Escamilla used to work at a bank. One day they decided it was an issue and yeah, they gave me an ultimatum. They told me get rid of the beard or find an employer that's more um, um, tolerating of the beard. Yeah. It turns out you can be fired for having a beard. We do not have a constitutional right to wear a beard. It's been tested in the Supreme Court, 1976. Christopher Oldstone Moore would know. He's a history professor at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, who wrote the book on beards. Do men have actually the right to grow their hair uh, as they wish? That's an interesting civil rights question. The Supreme Court has recently ruled in favor of a Muslim prisoner in a federal prison. So the Supreme Court is tolerant of beards for religious reasons, but not for any other reason. According to Professor Oldstone Moore, there's still a long way to go before beards gain full acceptance in our modern American world. We still have a, a norm, a shaving norm in our culture that's well established. And so anyone who deviates from that norm is in some regards suspicious. And yet... Who could be more trustworthy than this guy? Shouldn't that put some of the suspicions to rest? What people don't realize is that at the beginning of Christian history, for the first four centuries, during the Roman era, he was most often depicted as a clean-shaven young man. We have absolutely no physical description of him at all. According to Old Stone Moore, the Jesus we see in pictures acquired his beard during the Middle Ages, when beards came into fashion. <laughs> Messianic portraiture history aside, Fred von Knox of the Bearded Villains is steadfast in his mission to change the world, one follicle at a time. What is a guy like me supposed to do? I haven't shaved for two weeks. This is like well, a medical you gotta, condition. You can keep trying. <laughs> trying hasn't worked. What about guys that can't grow a beard? They can't be part of the Bearded Villains? I'm sorry. There's, uh, we respect you all, but no, not this time about as polite a rejection as you'll ever get. Coming up, I think sometimes people assume just because I have so many children, I'm some kind of expert on fatherhood. Believe me, I'm not. Jim Gaffigan, father times five. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Father's Day thoughts this morning from a father five times over. Contributor, Jim Gaffick. Yes, Father's Day is one of those made-up holidays. Then again, every holiday is a made-up holiday. It's not like there was Halloween and then the Big Bang happened. I guess what people mean is that Father's Day is not an important holiday. Maybe it's not. Father's Day doesn't hold our attention like Christmas does, or Fourth of July does, or even, frankly, how Cinco de Mayo does. There seems to be no anticipation surrounding Father's Day. No dad ever said, I can't wait until Father's Day. I'm a dad, and I always seem a little surprised when Father's Day shows up in my calendar in June. I always look at the third Sunday in June with a little, oh, that's right, Father's Day's coming up. That'll be awkward. I hope my four-year-old gives me another popsicle stick napkin holder. Anyway, Father's Day is a day to honor dads. I'm the father of five energetic young children, so I should get more honor, right? Of course not. I think sometimes people assume just because I have so many children, I'm some kind of expert on fatherhood. Believe me, I'm not. Based on that logic, because I eat a lot, I should be really good at cooking, but I'm certainly not that. I barely know how to use a microwave. 
don't get me wrong, I love being a dad, but I don't consider myself especially good at it. I'm not a natural. I didn't spend my 20s dreaming about changing full diapers at five in the morning, struggling with parental guilt, or existing in constant exhaustion. I don't think anyone does. I'll likely spend today like any other Sunday with my screaming children, but Father's Day serves as a reminder that I am grateful to be a father, and I have plenty to be grateful for. Being a dad has changed my life. Sure, I'm fatter and balder, but being a dad has made me less self-centered and less selfish. If a baby cries, you can't think, eh, sleep's more important. Essentially, being a father has made me more human. I guess most surprising to me, instead of hindering my career path, being a dad expanded my opportunities. I wrote a book about my experience being a father and developed a television show based on the chaos of my personal fatherhood experience. <laughs> this fatherhood stuff is a gold mine. <laughs> oh, and my children are the best gift I've ever received. Happy Father's Day. Next, remembering. Church bells tolled across Orlando early this morning as the city took note of the fact that it was one week ago the worst act of gun violence in our nation's history took 49 lives. There are fathers on this Father's Day who are mourning instead of celebrating. And a lot of us are asking again, how will this violence end? You might not have known it, but last week was National Flag Week. Yet, we spent most of it with the nation's flags at half-staff. Of course, what happened in Orlando last weekend is but the latest in the terrible accounting of these sorts of things. Once again, we found ourselves struggling to separate the strands of anger, sorrow, shame, and anguish. I don't know where my son is. No one can tell me where my son is. If he's been shot, if he's dead, no one knows. The bodies of her son, Drew Leinonen, and his partner, Juan Guerrero, were found side by side on the floor of the Pulse nightclub. They had been seeing each other for almost two years, inseparable in life and in death, it seems. Brenda McCool had gone to the club with someone, too, her son Isaiah, one of 12 children she raised, who watched her beat cancer twice. But that night, her son watched his mother collapse in a hail of bullets, bullets that nearly took him as well. He survived. But surviving that awful night comes with its own kind of pain. The guilt of feeling grateful to be alive is heavy. Wanting to smile about surviving but not sure if the people around you are ready. Patience Carter penned that poem after making it out of the club safely with her friend Akira Murray. But they both ran back inside to get Akira's cousin, Tierra Parker. All three were trapped in the bathroom. All three were shot. Patience and Tierra made it to the hospital. But Akira would become the youngest of the 49 victims, just 18, barely out of high school. There are stories for each and every one of the Orlando victims. And for all the hate and horror and terror, the celebration of their lives has made this city both the saddest and most loving place in the country. Still, the sameness of it all is simmering. I held and hugged grieving family members and parents, and they asked, why does this keep happening? And they pleaded that we do more to stop the carnage. They don't care about the politics. Neither do I. We used to expect change in the wake of the unspeakable. Uh, everyone around me got shot. After Columbine, schools began installing metal detectors. Holy cow. After the Oklahoma City bombing, federal buildings across the country became fortresses. And of course, after 9-11, none of us ever got through an airport the same way again. 
but on gun violence, we seem stuck. And that inaction carries consequences. The phrase thoughts and prayers has become trite in the eyes of many. The chair asks that the House now observe a moment to some, of silence. Moments of silence aren't much better. This was Democratic Congressman Jim Himes on Monday. Silence. Not me. Not anymore. I will no longer stand here absorbing the faux concern, contrived gravity, and tepid smugness of a House complicit in the weekly bloodshed. Sooner or later, the country will hold us accountable for our inaction. But as you bow your head and think of what you say to your God, when you are asked what you did to slow the slaughter of innocents, there will be silence. We cope, perhaps, by trying to compartmentalize it all. But where in our conscience do we find the room for still another shooting, another vigil, another funeral? There have been at least 15 already. Amanda Alvear. We go about what's become a routine of national mourning, all well-intentioned, all necessary, but all far too familiar. Javier Jorge Reyes, 40. Some saw a rainbow over the Pulse nightclub last week as a sign that perhaps the worst had passed, that maybe love had indeed won in the end. But rainbows are fleeting. They will be back, but perhaps only after the next storm. Tevin Eugene Crosby, 25. Frank Hernandez, 27. I'm Lee Cowan. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. We'll see you again next week. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.